Okay. Genesis chapter 21. We are uh, looking at the last part of this chapter today. Uh, last week we were uh, looking at more of the story related to the birth and the very early years of Isaac. And uh, last week particularly we were looking at the circumstances around the celebration, the feast of his weaning, and then the events that happened with uh, with Ishmael and with his mother Hagar. And uh, I... Uh, I really appreciated you all were quite uh, involved last week. We raised some difficult issues and you all were thinking hard and asking good questions and bringing up good points. And I, uh, not that you aren't always thinking, but sometimes you're more active in your uh, participation than, than otherwise. And uh, so I, I really do uh, appreciate it uh, when you ask hard questions and I have to throw up my hands and go, oh, I don't know. Uh, that's fine with me. So. Uh, you did that last week. You made me earn my living last week, so I appreciate it. But uh, <clears throat> that being said, uh, what do you remember that we talked about last week? That Hagar had a promise from God. Okay. When she was so distraught about her son, she really should have been moving on with God. Okay. She already spoke to her, already talked to her about it. Okay. And I think that's something that I... It hit with me. <laughs> and I was totally something crying about maybe not. Yeah, yeah. It, it resonates with me too, which is why I brought that up. Is She's wandering around in the desert afraid she's going to die. She and her son are, son, son are going to die of thirst. and uh, and But she has a promise from God that he's going to live and he's going to... He's going to have all these descendants and he's going to become a great nation and she has this promise. But she's lost sight of the promise. And and uh, and uh, like Debbie said, there's parallels in our own life of times when we have God's promises and we have His assurances, but we lose sight of those things and we walk around thinking we're going to die having our pity parties and, and uh, we lose sight of God's promise for our lives. So, it's a tremendous lesson there with Hagar. What else? On the other side with Abraham, he didn't really want to go talk to her and got the warning to stress. Yeah. Why? I got this under control. Yeah. And a lot of times I get distressed over things. Yeah. Yeah, the same problem with Abraham, wasn't it? He, he lost sight of what God had told him about Ishmael. And so he's, he's fretting and stewing about this, and God is saying. Uh, I, I've got it under control. I'm taking care of this. You just do what you need to do. Now, Rick, I was uh, in an archery place, a gun place Friday, real, and contemplating maybe archery would not be another new hobby. Then <laughs> <laughs> so, I read this and it says he became an uh, archer. He <laughs> used the term she sat down about a bow shot. Yeah, there you go. Was, was that an affirmation? <laughs> this is God's leading for him to take up archery. <laughs> That's what they call eisegesis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Scale. Yeah, it's, it's, 
it is interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. <laughs> well, we're going far afield here, folks. We're, we're, hey, I like Hagar. <laughs> Hagar the comic. Yeah. <laughs> I take that all back. I said about you guys thinking last week. <laughs> he wasn't here. <laughs> he thought we were talking about the comic strip all this time. So, what else? Yeah. He actually has uh, uh, he actually has more than one at this point, and later he'll have even more than that. But Isaac is the one and only son. Why does he Why does he call him the one and only son? He's the only child of promise. Yeah, and that's why God affirms Sarah's insistence that Ishmael be sent out. Okay, because with God. Only the sons of the promise inherit the promise. And that's very important to God. And, uh, and, and we realize then from, from that principle, and then as we get on further in Scripture and into the New Testament, when we see the application of that, we understand that, that the promises of God are made for the people of God. And, and it's a fallacious argument to suggest that, that just anybody can be a beneficiary of the promises of God. They are reserved only for those who are born of the promise, okay? for those who are born of faith. And that's just a vital principle, important principle, uh, as we were saying, that, that Paul brings out then in Galatians and in Romans and the writer of Hebrews brings out. Okay? Part of that, but made me think about again how zealously God guards that line. Just mm-hmm. here, and I get to thinking all the way through. Yeah. Even though He judges the people, He says, "I'm going to kick all you guys out, and you no more kings." He still zealously guards that line. Yeah. And then, then you come to think, okay, that's amazing because now I'm in that line. Yeah. And, and I tend to think to myself, well, I'm not a great Christian. There are people out there that are doing a lot more than me. They're suffering for Christ. I should be kind of on the B team, C team. Uh, yet I'm in that line, you know, instead of that I'm the apple of his eye. It's pretty humble. Yeah. Yeah, and I was thinking about that uh, today, uh, or in preparation for today's lesson, too. How we think about what, what happened back in chapter 20 with... Uh, with Abraham and Abimelech and how Abraham messed up and he comes out smelling like roses out of that deal uh, in spite of his uh, in spite of his deceit and everything and and you just see the mercy of God and the grace of God on the life of Abraham and as we'll see in the passage that we're going to look at today how God's favor is on him whatever he does 
you know. And even when he goes down to Egypt and he has that scenario in Egypt and he comes out of Egypt again smelling like roses, uh, you know, even though he was, uh, he was at, in, at blame in that situation. And then again in the situation with Abimelech that we looked at in chapter 20. And as I was thinking about that in the context of the idea of covenant, which we're going to talk about again today, it just keeps coming up again and again and again. We're going to talk about that again today. And I was reminded of, of when God cut the covenant with Abraham back there in chapter 15. Remember in that, that whole scenario where he cuts the carcasses and he divides them up. And then, it is, then it's God himself who walks down that bloody alley. It's not Abraham, but it's God himself that walks down the bloody alley. And, he, and he's saying to Abraham that it doesn't matter, Abraham, what you do. It's all contingent upon me and my work. And, and when there's fault and when there's blame in this covenant, I will take it on myself, which is, of course, exactly what he did for us in his son. And so we see that Abraham, in spite of all of his sin and in spite of his failures and in spite of his weaknesses, God just blesses him because that's the nature of the covenant that God has made with him. It's just an awesome thing. It's just the Lord. (laughs) It's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Okay, well, let's go on then. we come to the end of that uh, part of the story about Isaac and Ishmael and stuff. And, and then we have this kind of little, almost parent, seems like a parenthetical story uh, that comes up beginning in verse 22. Let's read it and then we'll think about some introductory thoughts and get into it. Now, it came about at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring or with my posterity. But according to the kindness that I have shown to you, you shall show to me and to the land in which you have sojourned. Abraham said, I swear it. But Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well of water which the servants of Abimelech had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor did I hear of it until today. Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant, cut a grit. Then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Abimelech said to Abraham, What do these seven ewe lambs mean which you have set by themselves? He said, You shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand so that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. Therefore, he called the place Beersheba because there the two of them took an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba and Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba And there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. Okay? Well, we read this story and it's kind of, uh, you know, you kind of go, okay, why why is this story here? What what is this all about? You know, we're, we're... we're kind of up to this great climax of Isaac and the things that are going to happen with Isaac. And in chapter 22, we go on into that remarkable uh, uh, and poignant story of, 
of God uh, calling on Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. And so that's we're right on the heels of that story. We have all this really profound stuff going on now with the fulfillment and the completion of the promise. And, and, and the Holy Spirit, through his narrator Moses here, interjects this, this account of this interaction with Abimelech about this covenant and this dispute about this well and, and the planting of a tree. And, and, and you go, well, what's the point of this story? How does this, how does this advance the narrative? How does, this, uh, how, does, how does this fit into this whole story of Abraham and the ongoing uh, uh, story of Abraham that we're looking at? Well, it actually does. And uh, hopefully by the end of this morning, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll see that more clearly. Um, the timing of this event, as we see, he says now at about this time that Abimelech uh, came uh, to talk to Abraham, uh, meaning that sometime around now the birth or the weaning of Isaac. So this is uh, early on in Isaac's life. Uh, the, uh, you know, you'll notice that this subject of covenant comes up again and he mentions the very word covenant. He talks twice about them having cut a covenant or cut a barit. Uh, so this idea of covenant comes up again in this passage. It's an idea that, uh, that, that we've been encountering more and more and more as we go through the book of Genesis, particularly through the story of Abraham. We've been emphasizing this, this importance of covenant. And, and it is helpful to us uh, just periodically to stop and think again about the culture and the environment. Uh, that Abraham lives in, the world that he lives in, and the society that he lives in, and how, how this whole idea of covenant is just interwoven within his whole, his whole psyche and the psyche of the culture. Okay? This idea that, that, that the whole culture is structured around these family units, these clans, uh, and these tribal groups, and your whole identity is associated or, or uh, connected to your clan and to your tribal group, to your family. Okay? And now you have interactions and you have encounters with people who are not part of your clan. They're not part of your family. Okay? How, how do you, how do you uh, interrelate with these people? How do you connect with these people? And we talked about uh, how the culture has developed or cultivated this idea of fictive kinship. That, you, that, that the, the way you enter into agreements with people who are not part of your family and expect them to live up to their agreement and they expect you to live up to your agreement is, in a sense, you become part of their family and they become part of your family through this idea of fictive kinship. And these fictive, fictive kinships are instituted or, or, or put into place through the vehicle of covenant. Okay? Through, the, through this this instrument of the covenant within the culture. So it's, so it's just a very vital, important element of the culture. We don't think of it. We have, we have all kinds of covenants and contracts today, but we don't think of them in the context or the way they thought of them in those days. They were so central to the way they interrelated and interreacted with one another. Uh, it was second nature to them. And, and so this idea of covenant comes up again. Now, I want you to notice that as the passage unfolds, it really kind of has a, an, an interesting outline to it. First, we have uh, in the first uh, couple of verses here, uh, two or three verses, we have Abimelech comes and he is uh, essentially proposing, he's making a proposal of a covenant to Abraham, okay? And Abraham quickly agrees to it. So we have uh, at the outset first 
we have this uh, treaty proposed and agreed to in principle. Okay. Uh, then in the verses right after that, verses 25 and 26, you have a complication. Okay. There's a there's a problem with this whole idea of this fictive kinship and this covenant relationship that Abimelech and Abraham are going to enter into together, and uh, and and so this problem arises and it has to be somehow resolved as they move forward in this covenant process. So that's the next part of the passage. And then in verses 27 uh, or verse 27, we have the actual implementation of the covenant. We have the cutting of the covenant, the offering of the animals. And and because it uses the term there that they cut a barit, they cut a covenant or made a covenant. Uh, the, 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 the term there implies that there was not only the giving of the animals, but that there was also the cutting of the animals took place as part of the institution of the covenant. And then uh, picking up in verse 28 and through verse 30, we have kind of what we might think of as a kind of a subcontract, a subcovenant or a, or, or a kind of a side agreement that they enter into to resolve this complication or this issue of the well that came up earlier. So you have the proposal of the covenant, you have the complication, you have the cutting of the covenant, and now you have the resolution of this of this complication, okay, regarding the well that had been seized by Abimelech's servants. And and that is resolved by the time we get to verse thirty. And then in verses thirty one uh, through thirty three we have the commemoration of the covenant, okay, and and that becomes quite significant. Now, what is interesting here is that is that Abimelech comes and he wants to propose this covenant uh, with Abraham or this treaty with Abraham, and it basically amounts to a non-aggression treaty that he want, wants to enter into with Abraham, and we'll get more into that in a minute. But he comes uh, wanting to make this treaty, and that that sets the context of the event or the occasion or the the circumstances of the situation here uh, that sets the context for us. But the 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 the, the uh, non-aggression covenant that he enters into or the non-aggression treaty that he enters into here, Abraham and Abimelech enter in together is really not the central issue of the passage. It's simply explaining to us why we get to the central issue or how we get to the central issue of the passage. And the central issue of the passage really has to do with the resolution of this complication, this matter of the well. Okay? Because that, that is what we find becomes the focal point of the passage as we move forward in the passage. So the actual cutting of the covenant only takes one verse. Okay? It just takes verse 20, uh, what, verse 27. But the rest of the passage, beginning in verse 28 and down through the rest of the passage with the exclusion of verse uh, 34, which just tells us about the next uh, period of time in Abraham's life. But from 31 down through, uh, excuse me, from uh, 28, uh, 20, yeah, 28 through 33, all has to do with the resolution of this issue about the well and then what Abraham thinks about it and how he commemorizes this covenant or this oath that he's entered into uh, with Abimelech. That really is the central issue. And if we understand that, then it helps us to understand how this narrative or how this story advances the narrative of Abraham and this whole story of Abraham. So we'll see that as we go forward. So I just give you that outline so you kind of see uh, ahead of time where we're going. And hopefully by the end of this morning, you will have said, well, we got there. <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. Um, 
But we have, first of all, we have uh, Abimelech and his commander of his army, Phicol. They come. It doesn't actually we don't see them coming. He just says they say, but we discover that they have come to visit Abraham with a proposal. Okay. And the scene, uh, as it unfolds here, the scene is is uh, apparently uh, at a well or in the vicinity of a well in what later becomes known as Beersheba, as we see in the passage. Okay, so I'll just refer to it as Beersheba, although early in the passage it's not known by that name. Okay, so we have this this scene where Abraham has his has his encampment, if you will. He's pitched his tents there and his whole entourage, and we know that by now it's a great a uh, large entourage of people and servants and slaves and and uh, cattle and and sheep and oxen and camels and all kinds of stuff you can imagine. It's a pretty massive in, uh, uh, encampment here uh, of Abraham. And uh, and and these two guys, uh, Abimelech and his commander, Phicol, come to visit. Now, what do we know about Abimelech? Who is he? Okay, the king of Gerar. Okay, he's the king of Gerar. Okay, we encountered him before back in chapter 20 when Abraham went to sojourn in Gerar and then had that little problem. And uh, and so we've encountered him before. So he's not new to us. We're introduced to him again. Remember that the name of Demelech is probably a titular name. In other words, we don't know what his actual name is. This is probably his title. Okay, and the same is true for the guy Phicol. That's probably his titular name. That's his title in the position that he holds as commander of the army. Okay, much like when we speak of when we speak of the kings of Rome, we call them Caesar. We speak of the kings of Egypt, we call them Pharaoh. And when we speak of the king of Gerar, we call him Abimelech. Okay, so it's probably a titular title. But Abimelech comes from Gerar. Uh, which we remember is kind of that area that we think of today as Gaza, the southwestern part of Palestine, okay, over on the coast, uh, the land of the Philistines. He comes from there and he comes to visit Abraham uh, at, at this well or near this well of Beersheba uh, in what becomes ultimately Beersheba. Uh, this area where Abraham is living is probably, as near as we can determine, is kind of on the frontier, if you will, of, of the land of the Philistines. Okay. Because we see at the end that, that Abimelech and Phicol, it says, return to the land of the Philistines. And yet they're coming to deal with Abraham, who is, who is, as we learned in chapter 20, still sojourning around in the land of the Philistines. So, so probably part of the problem that developed with regards to this well is that we're clear out on the outskirts. We're out in that kind of ill-defined frontier area. Where it's not, where we're not exactly sure whose territory this is. Okay, this could be the territory of uh, that would come under the jurisdiction, jurisdiction of Abimelech, uh, the king of Gerar, or it, or it could be uh, it could be open territory, or it could be territory that belonged to somebody else. And this is kind of this. Well, I don't want to call it a no man's land, but kind of this frontier area that Abraham is now sojourning around in and has located at and and uh, as we discover later in the passage has gone to all the trouble to dig a well uh, in order to supply his flocks and his herds and and his family and and that sort of thing. So so Abimelech comes to visit Abraham. And why has he come? 
Okay. Uh, let me back in. I got a little ahead of myself. You're, you're right on that. Incidentally, that's part of it. Uh, but, but let me back up. Let's think uh, again uh, for a moment just about these two characters that are playing a part in this story. First, we have Abimelech. Okay, and and we know Abimelech. He's a king. He's a great chieftain. Okay, he's powerful. We've seen uh, we've seen from the story earlier that he's quite wealthy. He's quite influential. We've seen that he is a uh, he is a man who fears God. Okay, and we drew a distinction between the fear of God and the fear of the Lord. Uh, I don't necessarily uh, uh, think of Abimelech as a believer in the sense that Abraham, that we think of Abraham as a believer, but he quite clearly is a man of high character. He's a man of high standards. Uh, he's a very influential man. He's a very powerful man. He's a very wealthy man. Uh, and uh, so this is one of the characters. The second character of the story, of course, is Abraham. And, and the thing that we begin to, we've, we've been seeing about Abraham as we move along, particularly since chapter 14, is this is a guy who's growing in stature economically, politically, and even militarily within the land of Canaan, within the land of Palestine, uh, even though he's an alien, he's a stranger. But as, he, as God continues to bless him and favor him in everything that he does, as Abimelech says, he becomes even more and more influential and wealthy and uh, powerful. And so, if you, are a, if you are a resident of the land of Canaan, if you're a king or somebody in authority in the land of Canaan, and you have this nomad, this sojourner, wandering around all around your land, and this guy is continually increasing in power and influence and wealth and that sort of thing, you begin to take more and more notice of him. Okay? And he becomes to you now more than just a nomad. He becomes a significant factor in your whole kind of socio-political considerations. Whenever you're thinking about your situation and your people and your land and your responsibilities and your opportunities, you have to factor in this guy... Abraham, this nomad, this sojourner, this alien who's wandering around in your land but has this exceedingly great wealth and profound influence. And as we saw clear back uh, as early as the War of the Kings, has already been, to, uh, been establishing treaties, that is, alliances, with other residents of Canaan. Okay? So even though he's an alien, he has all these kind of interconnections and he's becoming quite influential. Um, and, and, and so it's understandable then that the, that, the, that the leaders of the various people groups and cities and kingdoms within the land of Canaan would, uh, would become somewhat deferential to Abraham. They'd give, him, they'd give him a good deal of consideration when they thought about issues that might relate to him. And, and we see that evidenced here by the fact that when Abimelech comes to visit Abraham, who does he bring with him? The commander of his army, okay? In other words, he realizes I'm not just going out here talking to any old Joe walking around on my land here, okay? I'm going talking to a guy who's got a lot of clout. He's got a lot of influence. He's got his own little army that's pretty powerful because he defeated the four Mesopotamian kings, okay? Yeah? Yeah. And 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And that comes out, incidentally, a number of years later, and in this passage I wanted to refer to in Genesis 23, when, when Abraham begins to negotiate for a place uh, to, where he can bury his wife. And, uh, and he goes to the, I believe it's the sons of Heth, I think it calls them. And, and he begins the negotiation with them. And, and they refer to him as a prince of God among us. Okay. So this is how the people of Canaan are now thinking of Abraham. They're thinking of him as this mighty prince. So even though he doesn't have any land, they think of him as this mighty and influential person. And, and they do recognize, this is very clear here at the beginning of chapter, uh, the beginning of the story we're looking at in chapter 21 here. Abraham says, or Abimelech says, God is with you in whatever you do. Okay. So he recognizes in Abraham that not only is he this great, powerful, economically, politically, etc., but he recognizes that the source of that is God. Okay. So it's very clear that when, when Abimelech comes to Abraham, he recognizes that Abraham is the guy who, no matter what he does, even when he blows it, God blesses him, okay? Which is what happened in Egypt and what happened in Gerar, okay? That no matter what he does, God blesses him. Now, to Bimelech, he wants to be on the right side of that. He wants to be on the side that is the recipient, even vicariously, of the blessing of God, as opposed to being an enemy of Abraham's, realizing that if you're an enemy of Abraham's, you're going to lose, because God blesses Abraham no matter what he does. Okay? So when Abimelech comes to Abraham, he's coming to Abraham in recognition that God's hand is on Abraham. And that God has blessed Abraham and God's going to bless Abraham. Now, let's think too about the time of these events. What, as I've already said, what is the timing of these events? Okay, after the child of promise has been born. Okay, now think about this. You got this nomad by the name of Abraham and he's wandering around for 25 years in the land of Canaan, growing more and more and more powerful and more influential. And so obviously his name and his reputation is spreading. And as his name and reputation spreads throughout the land of Canaan, what is known about him? He's childless. Okay. He's had a son at a hundred years of age when his wife is 90 years old. And we clearly know now, as we've seen in the story, this is a miracle. This is an absolute miracle here. And it's kind of like when the children of Israel were coming into the promised land many, many, many uh, years later, when they're coming into the promised land and God is doing all these miracles. And what does it do to the people in Canaan? It makes them nervous, doesn't it? Because they recognize the, just the powerful, miraculous God that has worked on behalf of these people. So, Abimelech has probably heard the story of the birth of Isaac. And, yes, Ruth. You'd think so, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. 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 And I think that's reflected in what Abimelech says when he, when he, when he, when he expresses to Abraham concern not only about their relationship, but about, Abimelech says, uh, my descendants and my posterity. So what he recognizes now is that Abraham's going to have descendants. 
and Abraham is going to have a posterity. Okay, so so it's so it's crucial to Abimelech that that he be on favorable terms with Abraham. This is a guy who is favored by God in everything he does, and he now has descendants, and God is going to favor those descendants. And Abimelech wants to make sure that he's on favorable terms with this guy. Okay, so he comes in proposal of this treaty. And you'll notice that the first thing he says is he says, I want you to pledge that you will not deal with me falsely. Why does he say that? He's already met what he wants. Okay, he recognizes. Now, this is this is interesting to me. That he's been wronged by Abraham. Now, he's wronged Abraham, too. We saw that when we looked at the story, but he's been wronged by Abraham. And yet he recognizes that Abraham is a man who has God's favor. Yeah, that must be really hard for the unbeliever to accept. To look at the lives of sinful people like you and I and go, well, why would God favor them? They're sinners too, just like I am. But that's the wonder of it, isn't it? That's the gospel. Is that God does favor people who are sinners. And Abimelech recognizes that. And so he goes, I'm a sinner too, but I want to get in on this. I want to be part of this blessing. And and that's, that's the gospel invitation, isn't it? The gospel invitation says, God favors sinners. And sinners can come to God and find that favor. And so that's what Abimelech does. So he comes and he gives this proposal. And he says, so first he says, I, I want you not to deal falsely with me. And we know the context of that. And then he says, I want you to deal kindly with me like I've dealt with you. He's asking for a reciprocal agreement here, a, a treaty of uh, reciprocity in which both of them agree to deal kindly with another. Not just that they would, you know, not go to war with each other, but they'd actually deal kindly with one another as Abimelech had done with Abraham in allowing him uh, access to his lands and his property and that sort of thing. And, and so uh, this is the nature of what he's seeking. And Abraham, you'll notice, immediately agrees to it. Now, the thing that's interesting to me here, and, and, I, and I want to reflect for just a second on the character of this guy, Abimelech. We've already ascertained that this is a man who fears God. Okay? And, and the thing that's interesting to me is that in this culture... And in this time, here we have a king, apparently a fairly powerful guy. He's got his own army. He's got his own general. Okay, Uh, So he's apparently fairly powerful. And he wants the security for his people. That's what he's after. He's after security for himself, for his descendants, and for his posterity. Okay, And how does he go about securing this security for his people? With a covenant, with a treaty. You notice what he doesn't do? You know, a lot of times, you know, particularly back then, but even today, when a country is concerned about establishing security for themselves, what do they do? Pardon? They build up their forces and they go to war, don't they? (laughs) 
They just conquer all the territory around. If they conquer all the territory, if they own all the territory, then they're safe. You know, That's what the Romans did. Okay, They just went out and they conquered all this territory for the sake of their own security. Okay, And, of course, the further out you get your borders, then the more area you have to be insecure, so the more you have to extend your borders. And that's oftentimes the way nations go about achieving security is through military conquest. Okay, But Abimelech doesn't do that. Abimelech seeks security for his people by going to individuals that he knows he can trust, he's confident he can trust, and he goes to them and he seeks with them a treaty of non-aggression and a friendship treaty. And so that's what he's doing here. He might lose, yeah, he might lose, yeah. Maybe he's not quite that pure up there, but that's what I was thinking. God has already come to him once and said, You're a dead man. <laughs> trying to avoid one more being woke up in the middle of the night. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's true. And so we probably have with Abimelech what we had with Sarah last week was mixed motives. Yeah, no doubt about that. I'm sure that's true. Okay. So Abraham immediately agrees to it. And then we have the big but. <laughs> but then, okay, Abraham has a complaint. So he's already agreed in principle to the treaty. But then he has this complaint, and the complaint is what? Okay. Uh, and it's not explicitly clear in the passage, but it appears uh, that the well referred to here in this verse is the well that Abraham dug that he refers to later, okay? Or meaning Abraham's servants dug, okay? So this is apparently a well that Abraham dug for the provision of his, of his whole entourage, okay? And at some point, the servants of Abimelech have apparently come and seized the well from Abraham. Now, I don't know what the status of the well is at this point. Uh, I, I don't know whether Abraham has regained control of the well or what has happened. Uh, but... but but what Abraham is saying to Abimelech is, well, this treaty idea is all well and good, but we do have a problem. Is that while you, in principle, have dealt well with me, you wanted to deal well, you said you would deal kindly with me, and in principle you wanted to do that, your servants have seized a well from me. What is Abimelech's response? Okay, I didn't know anything about it, okay? Now we have one of two options here regarding Abimelech. What? What are they? He's telling the truth or he's lying, okay? Either he really didn't know, and this is the first time he's heard of it, or he did know and he's just covering himself here, okay? Now, I'm going to give Abimelech the benefit of the doubt here. And the reason I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt is because Abraham doesn't make any issue with it. The narrator doesn't make any issue with it. It's like they just take Abimelech's statement at face value, okay? So it appears to me, as Abraham moves forward in this process, that he's satisfied with Abimelech's answer. Okay, So we don't know for sure whether or not Abimelech was, was bluffing here or whether or not uh, he really didn't know, but I'm going to assume that he didn't know because that seems to be the way Abraham then deals with the situation. He's going, okay, I'll accept that explanation. You didn't really intend this. Okay, We can work that out. Okay, So what does Abraham do next? Okay, he gives these animals and then at the end of that verse, you'll notice it says they made a covenant. That's that same Hebrew term, cut a barit. Okay, they cut a covenant. Okay, so it's that same idea that we've talked about all along as we've talked about covenant. 
They have the animals, they cut the animals, and we've talked about the symbolism, the significance of the cutting of the animals, which is what? Yeah, exactly right. Okay, this is what happens to the party of this covenant that doesn't uh, abide by the covenant. Okay, now what we have here is a clear example of a parity covenant. Okay, we've talked about parity covenants and we've talked about uh, about suzerain vassal covenants. Okay, suzerain vassal covenants is where a greater party is making a covenant with a lesser party. And parity covenant, of course, is a covenant where you have two people, two individuals of relatively uh, equal uh, power and influence who are entering into, a, entering into a covenant together. And this would be an example of a parity covenant or a parity treaty between two men of, of relatively uh, equal stature. Okay. And, and so they cut a covenant together and then, and, then, and then he just kind of moves on from there. He moves back to this issue of this problem of the well. So it's like Abraham says, okay, I'm going to make this covenant with you and we'll go ahead and we'll do this. And we cut the covenant. And they do that. And then Abraham goes and he gets seven ewe lambs from his flock. And he brings them over and he just kind of sets them by themselves over here where, where Abimelech can see them. And what does Abimelech say? What are these about? Because <laughs> okay, okay. he's already got all the animals that are related to the cutting of the covenant. He's already received those. But here are these seven ewe lambs that are over by themselves and and obviously Abraham's up to something and he wants to know what are you up to Abraham what, what's this about okay and the explanation is what okay he says he says you take these seven ewe lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well okay. so the focus of the narrative now switches from the idea of this general covenant to the resolution of this issue of the well. And that becomes the focus of the rest of the passage. Okay. Meaning, this is what's really important. This is what we need to think about in this passage. Is this idea of the resolution of the problem of this well and how does this problem get resolved? And, and Abraham, in offering these seven ewe lambs to Abimelech, is saying, if you take these... What you're doing is you're agreeing that I took that I dug this well. Okay. And so Abimelech obviously takes the seven new lambs and in doing so gives his personal assent or stamp of approval to the idea that really the, the well is Abraham's. Well, I'm sure there's a large audience. I'm sure there's, I'm sure all Abraham's people are around and the fight call, he's standing there watching. So, yeah, it's not just the two of them. There's a, they're a large group. But did you notice what I said? Abimelech recognizes what? It's Abraham's well. What's happened? Sounds like a real estate deal, folks. You realize what's happened here in the last three years? For 25 years, Abraham was walking around in the land of promise with nothing to show for. 
He's walking around in the land of promise with two promises. Descendants and land. And he has for 25 years nothing to show for it. And now here, in a matter of two or three years, Abraham has Isaac and he has a well. And this doesn't escape Abraham's notice. Now this is a far cry from the land of Canaan. This is a far cry from wherever your foot from wherever your foot steps, wherever your foot falls, I'm going to give to you. Whatever your eye can see, I'm going to give you. It's a far cry from that. As one son is a far cry from an innumerable host of descendants more innumerable as innumerable as the sand of the seashore. Isaac is a far cry from the fulfillment of that promise. And the well at Beersheba is a far cry from the whole land of Canaan. But both are a seal. Finally, a tangible seal that Abraham has that God is a man, a God, excuse me, of His Word. And so, now that he has this well that's deeded to him, if you will, by the by Abimelech's receipt of the seven few lambs. Now that he has it, what's the first thing he does? Before that. He calls the place Beersheba. We've talked about this from clear back in early chapters of Genesis. When you name something, what does it mean? It's yours. You have authority over it. Did you notice that? This is the first place Abraham names. It's the first place he names. He calls it Beersheba. Which means either well of the oath or well of seven. Okay? Actually, uh, those two words in Hebrew are only about one letter apart. So, uh, most commentators really aren't sure whether or not he's calling it the well of the oath or the well of seven, meaning reference to the seven lambs. I think probably he's calling it the well of seven, a reference to the seven ewe lambs which serve as a witness or a testimony that he dug the well. Okay? So, he calls the place Beersheba. And in doing so, Abraham is really calling the well the well of this oath or the well of these seven that are testimony that I dug the well, he's, what he's really saying is, is he's commemorating the well with a name that reflects his authority, his ownership over this little hole in the ground. <laughs> and this is, his, this is his little token, if you will. This is his little seal. This hole in the ground is his seal of the promise of God. And, and he, is, he is overwhelmed at this point with the faithfulness of God. He's overwhelmed with God's... Uh, that when God says something, it's done, like we talked about last week. When God says something, it's accomplished. Even though we don't actually see it, it's done. Okay. So then, he's named the place. Then what does he do? Plants a tree. He plants a tamarisk tree. It's interesting to me how we read these things from different points of view. Here's all this stuff going on. 
<laughs> Actually, I kind of thought about that too, because because the last time we saw Abraham associated with trees, it was up at Mamre and their oaks, you know. And I'm wondering where did he get this tamarisk tree? I, you know, the thought actually crossed my mind too. Where did he get the tree? <laughs> I have no idea where he got the tree, but he got a tree and he plants it. Okay. What are you doing when you're planting a tree? What are you saying? going to be here a while. This is the future. Back uh, many years ago, uh, I uprooted my entire family, what it consisted of at the time, and we moved all the way across Norman from one house to another, to the house we live in now. And we rented this house. And uh, we moved there because we had to leave the last house. The lady was wanting to sell it or something. I forget what the circumstances were. Maybe it's because our family. I don't remember why we moved. The family was getting bigger or whatever. Anyway, we moved. Okay. And I had no intention of living there very long. We just rented the place and we just needed a place to live, you know. And I had plans on going places and doing things in my life. Okay. And uh, so we moved there. And about a year or two after we moved there, I was working for a guy who happened to be the heads of, head of uh, grounds at the university. And uh, I was doing some work at his house and he had a big walnut tree out in his backyard and it used to shoot up these little, you know, volunteer shoots. And so uh, he said to me, he says, you want a walnut tree? And I'm going, yeah, do I want a walnut tree? You know, uh, I said, so sure, you know, who wouldn't want a walnut tree? You know? So before I leave that day, he comes and he presents me with a with a number nine tin can with dirt in it and a stick, you know, about this tall. OK. And he hands me this and he says, here's your walnut tree, you know, and I'm <laughs> You're right, you know, and I wanted a walnut tree, you know, and uh, so, you know, obviously the guy knew what he was talking about. He was head of grounds for the university. So at any rate, I took the thing home. I wasn't very impressed with it. I plopped it down on the front porch as I walked in the door and I left it there for, I don't know, days, maybe a couple of weeks. I don't know. It sat there on my front porch, you know, ignored it. And uh, and then finally, uh, one time I thought, well, you know, I probably ought to do something with this tree. So I grabbed that can, I went around the backyard, went over in the southwest corner of my backyard, and I dug a hole in the ground, and I stuck this stick in the ground, okay? So there's this little stick sticking up out of the ground, and I look at it, and I go, first time around this yard with a lawnmower, and that stick's going to be history. (laughs) So I went and I got a stake, and I drove a stake in the ground by that tree. This morning, as I was preparing my lesson, I was sitting at the dining room table and looking out my window at this 25 foot, 30 foot tall walnut tree in my backyard. It's got a whole history to it. We fight for the health of that tree every summer, you know, with bagworms and all kinds of other problems we have. But but we have this massive walnut tree in our backyard that is the feature of our backyard, you know, the dominant feature. I planted it when my kids were this high. And now it's grown and mature, and they are grown and mature. That's true. I didn't realize it when I planted it. I didn't plan to live there. Now we own the place and stuff. But, you know, I didn't plan all that. But, but God knew that when I planted that tree, that that really, these are my roots. And this is where my family was going to grow up. That's what it means when you plant a tree. And Abraham is saying, we're going to be here a while. This is, this is God's down payment on this promise. 
So he plants a tree and then what does he do? He calls upon the name of the Lord. What name of the Lord? The everlasting God, the eternal God. And so Abraham now enters into one of those special times of calling upon the name of God like we saw at Bethel. He calls upon the name of the Lord. And the specific thing about God that he's reflecting on and considering here is God's eternality. Now, when we speak of God's eternality, we're speaking of we're speaking of something that is excuse me, qualitatively different than our eternality. As believers, we have eternal life. And everybody has eternal life, actually. Some people, their eternal life is eternal death. But we all have eternal life. Once we're born, we live forever. But when we speak of God's eternality, we're not speaking of someone who began and then will live forever. When we're speaking of God's eternality, we're thinking we're speaking of one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. One who has never had a beginning. He is without beginning of days, Hebrews says. And we talked about this before, that, that God is outside of time. Time is His creation. Just like space is His creation. And God is outside of space. Now, that doesn't mean that God has not entered into space. He has entered into space, as we saw in the Incarnation. So, God is outside of time. That doesn't mean that God has not entered into time. He has entered into time, as we see in the Incarnation. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Okay? But God is outside of time. He is beyond time. God just is. And so what that means is when Jesus says, I am, present tense, the same, yesterday, today, and forever. Before Abraham was, I am. What, what we understand about God is that, is that there's a, some sense, and we can't understand this, that God does not experience things sequentially. They just... God just is. And, and that's why when God says something, it just is. When, God's, when God speaks His promise, it's reality. It's not that sometime down the road it will become reality. If God has said it, it is reality. And when Abraham calls upon the name of God, the everlasting God, the eternal God, what he's saying is, He's calling upon the God who when He speaks something, it is. is. And it's as certain the moment He speaks it as it is when it's all completed. And this is what Abraham reflects on now. That he has these two little seals of the promise. A little baby by the name of Isaac and a hole in the ground by the name of Beersheba. Well, just briefly then, I want to think again, just to add to some of the things we've talked about before in the life of Abraham. And that is this. That as we've looked at Abraham's sojourn through Canaan, we have seen several places that have become important. Shechem, Bethel, the Negev, the Oaks of Mamre. Okay. These are places that have become important in Abraham's experience in Canaan and Abraham's experience with God. And now we add to them one more, Beersheba. 
And these are the places when Abraham comes across these places again, later points in his life, or when he thinks back on them, they remind him of the faithfulness and the goodness of God and of the providence of God in his life. And from time to time in Abraham's life, he will sojourn and he will go eventually and, and, and be again in the vicinity of the Oaks of Mamre. And can you imagine what's going on in the mind of Abraham each time he passes the Oaks of Mamre and he looks at that one oak tree near where he had pitched his tent under which he had sat and eat, eaten a meal with God? And every time he passed that oak tree, what does he think about? He thinks about eating dinner with God and God giving him a promise. And God giving Sarah a promise as they sat, as he and God and those two angels sat under that oak tree. And every time he passed Bethel and came by Bethel, he saw that altar he built there and he remembered calling upon the name of God. He also remembered being there later and the division split between him and Lot. These are the experiences, the encounters of Abraham's life that are associated with the places in Abraham's life. And one of the things we begin to discover as we begin our journey, a journey through the, all of the Old Testament, but particularly through the book of Genesis, is that we are people of a place and places. We saw that all the way back in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. That when God created us, He created for us a place. And He made it a beautiful place and He made it a wonderful place. But, but we are physical creatures. We are physical beings. And, and because we are physical beings, places are important to us. And... And so when God created Adam and Eve, it says he also made a garden. And then it says he took them and he put them in the garden. I get from that that they weren't created in the garden. They were created somewhere else. And then God had the garden over here and he brought them and he presented them to this place. And he wanted them to experience this place that he had made for them. And he wanted that place to always be associated in their mind with his presence with them. And so we discover that God really makes a big issue out of this thing about place. And it's very easy for us in the New Testament era when some of the things about the physical trappings of the Jewish religion we no longer embrace or hold to. It's very easy for us to lose sight of how important this issue of place is to God. But God has not lost sight of it. Because the very promise of the future for us is what? Still a promise of a place. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you. So you can be with me. Where? In that place. What is that place? Some spiritual existence up in some, you know, ethereal heaven? No. Revelation makes it explicitly clear. It's a new heavens and a new earth. And that's one of the reasons why I understand those parts of Revelation that talk about the new heavens and new earth, not to be talking in some kind of ethereal, spiritual sense, but to be talking about a real, tangible, physical place that God is going to create for us and make for us. Because that is really how He intended it from the very beginning when He first started. He intended for us to be physical beings living in a physical world that is full of His goodness and His presence. And that's exactly what we're going to have in the end. 
exactly what he planned from the beginning. Okay? And so place is important. And it's important to us. And because it's important to us, it's still important to us today. Even though we don't have the place of the garden in the past and we don't have the new heavens and the new earth yet, places are important to us. And so God gives us places in our lives. But the thing is that God always wants those places to be associated with Him and His presence and His providence and His working in our life. And I have places in my life. I have places that are important to me because those are the places where I encounter God in a special way. And you probably do too. Places that you think about. Just this week, the Lord has given me the opportunity to go back and work on a place that I haven't been at for 39 years. But that place is a significant place in my life. And so, in preparation for this lesson, it's kind of interesting. God just took me here. You work in this place. Because this is a place where your life took a radical new direction. And my providence was at work in your life here. Even though you didn't know it at the time. And I came to Norman. And I thought, again, I was going to be here for a couple weeks. And I was going to leave. And I went. And I stayed in this uh, room in a fraternity house over on campus for two weeks. And that was, that was my you know, two-week temporary home while I was here in Norman for a couple weeks. And then I was going to leave. And here I am 39 years later because God's providence was at work in my life. And now I'm over there painting that fraternity house this week. And all the time I'm painting it, I'm reflecting on how God is in charge of our lives and how God is fulfilling our purposes in life. And throughout my life, you know, I'm getting older now, my life is is scattered all over the country and even in other places of the world are these places that I can go and I can reflect on. And you have those places in your life. You have the Bethels and the Beershebas and the Mamrys. You have those places. Make use of them. Make use of them for what? Make use of them to stop and think and reflect on God's faithfulness and God's providence in your life. Right. When I think of paper containers, the everlasting God, in the sense of God is always there. There you go. There you go. Yeah. And that's a good way to end it. Well, the next couple of weeks I'll be gone. And uh, Rick has graciously agreed to teach. Yes, Rick. Go ahead. Um, as I was praying about it, I'm thinking about it. 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 I'm thinking about it